Good day and welcome. I'm Reverend Bonnie Gatchel, and you're listening to Complex and Beautiful Bodies, a podcast where we journey together to unlearn the lies told against our bodies and instead to embrace our bodies for the complex and beauty that they are, created by a creator. Good morning and welcome back to Complex and Beautiful Bodies, a podcast of Route One Ministry. I am Reverend Bonnie Gatchel, and we are very excited that you would join us for our first series. The name of this series is Incredible Women, and the way I came up with that title is in the work that we do. In the work that we do, we often collaborate and partner with survivors of trafficking and exploitation. And in one of these times where we were collaborating and a survivor was sharing her story, I just remember being blown away at how incredibly brave and strong um, and independent and yet gracious all the women who are survivors are that I know. Um, and so I thought we, we should tell the world their story. We should help them tell their story and share part of their story because they are incredible women. So really what we could call this series is Incredible Women I Know, <laughs> but Incredible Women, six survivors of trafficking and exploitation here in the United States have bravely agreed to share their story, to be interviewed over the next six weeks. And so this morning we have the privilege of interviewing, having a conversation with Audrey Morrissey. Audrey Morrissey is the Associate Director of My Life, My Choice. It is a program of the Justice Resource Institute. And since 2002, My Life, My Choice has offered a unique continuum of survivor-led services aimed at preventing the commercial sexual exploitation of children. I am a big fan of my life, my choice, and the fact that it's survivor-driven, survivor-led. I know for a fact that it can speak into the lives of young women and young girls in a way that's different, a different resource than what I can offer. And so I think with that, we'll just open up the floor and welcome Audrey to the room. Thank you for being here this morning. Thank you so much for having me. And I have to say, Com Complex Beautiful Bodies, I love that title for this series. When I heard you say that, I kind of got goosebumps. Um, I'm just like a girl power chick. And um, it just, it just, the title just really moved me and, you know, um, reassured me that, um, I'm, I'm doing the right thing today being on your podcast. So it's it fabulous to hear. Thank you. And I also, I don't want to go amiss. So last week was just me here in the room, but I also have the privilege of inviting in our producer and our director of education, Whistling Augustine. And I don't know if you want to say a little bit about yourself and why you're here today. Yeah. So uh, again, my name is Whistling. I am a Haitian uh, woman, uh, born and raised in Boston, Massachusetts, 
and I am the director of education and church relation for Route One. Uh, I'm part of this work because I'm passionate, right, about, um, and I deeply care about social justice and marginalized groups. Uh, and being in this role, I've just learned so much about the importance of our hypersexualized culture and exposing that, right, the ability um, to be able to work through trauma and what that looks like, and also having the uh, knowing and realizing the privilege of having a choice. So that what, what brings me here today, what makes me part of this organization, and I'm so excited to be able to interview Audrey today um, in here. And to get started, right? So Audrey, just tell us uh, just a little bit more about the work that you do at My Life, My Choice. Um, and yeah. Sure. So My Life, My Choice, we're, we're located in Boston. We've been around for 19 years. Um, a little bit about of what we do. We came about due to the death of a young woman who was living in a DCF funded group home. Um, she was found murdered and her murder to this day has still not been solved. But what they know is that what law enforcement believe is that either a buyer or an exploiter killed her. And unfortunately, like anything else in our society, something horrific has to happen before folks pay attention to a certain issue. And so this issue of commercial sex, sexual exploited children um, was not talked about until after this poor young woman was murdered. The good news is that our Department of Children's and Families in Massachusetts was the first in the country to take a look at this and say, wait a minute, these are our children. And what can we do to prevent this from happening to our children? And at that time, they had a small pot of money. They hired uh, Lisa Goldblatt Grace and another survivor. Um, you know, it was basically a thing of, listen, we have this small pot of money, you know, figure something out. We need something um, to prevent our children from being exploited. And um, what was developed is the My Life, My Choice um, prevention curriculum, which is a 10-week group that uh, we, that to, up to date, we, it's run in 32 states across the country. Um, but at that time, we were going into, and still to this day, group homes, um, lock facilities, really anywhere um, that housed or work with adolescent girls. And I have to be specific, the curriculum is specific to girls. It can't be adjusted for boys. Trans girls are more than welcome. Um, and so that, that prevention, 10 week prevention group was developed, uh, a training commercial sexual exploitation of children because what was found out immediately was that you had to train people before you go in and apply this curriculum uh, in the group home settings um, because adults um, had the language wrong and made the kids feel like, why am I, in, you know, back then, they, you know, they were calling the kids would come to the group and they would say, I'm not a prostitute, why am I in the, right? And, um, and so we found, listen, we have to train people. And I, you know, I always had to back then explain to kids, this is a prevention group. Um, I'm, I'm here to prevent this from happening to you, right? Um, and so the prevention curriculum was developed, our training was developed, which to this day, we still um, train folks on commercial sexual exploitation of children. Um, I came on board like almost at the beginning and um, around 2004, 
I founded our mentoring program. And our mentoring program is we, where we pair adult uh, survivors with adolescent kids for a one-on-one -on -one mentoring relationship. And our mentoring program, we also serve boys, trans youth. Um, we actually had a focus group when, when we initially thought about serving um, boys in particularly. Um, and so with interviewing um, adolescent boys, their parents, uh, they all felt that um, because we weren't sure, should we get a male to mentor the, the boys or so forth? But um, the, between the boys and the parents, they preferred that they had um, female mentors because these boys, their abuse, um, you know, the kids who identified as boys, their abuse had happened at the hands of males. So the parents felt safer and the boys also felt safer. And so we come at this as a human rights issue. We believe that no human being should be bought or sold. They go, children ought definitely, but even adults, you know, people who um, don't have a choice in this, this, this issue, um, you know, we really fight hard um, with the prevention of um, people exploiting children and also working with kids who have been exploited exploited with the goal of um, helping them exit the life. We don't use terms like rescue. Yeah. We, you know, we meet kids where they're at and, and work with them. Yeah. That's great. I, I love all of that. I knew some of what my life, my choice did. I didn't know that whole story, the backstory. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, this wasn't in the like those questions, but I do have a follow up really quick from what you just said, because I think it's important to the people listening who this might be their first time realizing that trafficking and exploitation happens here in the U.S., happens here in Boston. Why not use the word rescue? Well, I think that comes from the media. If you look at media campaigns, there's a girl chained to a radiator you know, um, I think of our training materials, the slide that we use, right? Girl's hands chained, girl peeking from a fence. Now, if I was walking down the street and, and some kid was uh, kept in a backyard and peeking through a fence and, and that young person said, help me, and I called 911 and the police came to, um, you know, get the child. I could use the term rescue then. Why? Because that victim is not going back to that situation, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing I wanna say about that mm -hmm. is since 2004, my life, my choice has never gotten a kid, a referral where a kid was locked in a basement, chained to a radiator in a back room, mm -hmm. first of all. Here's the thing, it's complicated. There are chains, but they're not visible chains. They're not the chains that the media shows us. Mm -hmm. The most powerful way to lock someone up and exploit them is to lock them down mentally. Okay. You just think of a cult leader, right? Over the years, we've heard different stories, right? Made for TV movies about cult leaders, right? They, they, they get their followers to see the world through their eyes, believe what they believe. I'm the only one that I love you. You know, get them away from their family so that they can have pop, right? You bring them closer, you house them. Like, let's get them away from people who care about them. And so when you're up against that, you, the term rescue, uh, the bottom line is 
chances of some a kid um, that might um, you might encounter. Um, well, we have to remember uh, with that brainwashing um, is that they have feelings for that exploiter, and it's complicated. And a lot of times, it's a lot of running back and forth. It's not found a kid, took her from her exploit. You're rescued now, honey. Now go on with your your life. It doesn't work that way. As a matter of fact, the kids under those circumstances, they're not calling them exploiters. They're calling them my man or my boyfriend. And if we say anything bad against that person, that's when you can really lose that young person, right? So the term we don't rescue, I wish we did, but it, I, you know, uh, I think if, um, you know, it'd be great rescue the kid next one to rescue that, right. Um, it's very complicated and we work with our kids, some of our kids for years at a time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thank you for unpacking all that for us. And I think what I love about the title of your organization, my life, my choice is some of what you've already hinted at is the other reason it's not a, like a, a rescue in in the sense of the description you had of cutting a, cutting a chain off someone's legs and taking them out of a building and then they're free is that it also takes work on ha- the work on the part of the victim right to do some of those mental gymnastics to rethink how they see the person that's trafficked them and to start identifying their own their own strengths and their own person again. And to like, I think about like them touching their face for the first time and just thinking of it again as just a face and not part of an object or not belonging to someone else. I know that you come by this work pretty honestly, that you have your own story with exploitation and trafficking. And I wondered if you'd be willing to share part of that with us this morning. Oh, sure. Um, you know, and I'm one of those people that, um, here's one of the things I want to say about exploitation too. I want to clear up for folks. Uh, people are, you know, we do that. I mean, as a parent, I've done it. You, uh, stay away from strangers. If someone approaches you, scream, make a lot of noise, don't get, right? The bottom line is that for me, my exploiter wasn't a, an exploiter. He was my boyfriend. I met him in high school. You know, um, I um, ended up um, pregnant at age 15, uh, a mother by the age of 16. And um, he was my first love. Even when I go back and tell the story, I, I can't say no, he was my first love. That's the bottom line. Um, that relationship has affected every relationship after that, right? Um, and I was truly in love with him. And, you know, for me, it started out subtle. It started out you know, um, shoplifting for him, you know, and those are things too, listeners to be mindful of trafficking is not always sex trafficking, right? Sometimes it starts with, uh, you know, you get see kids or getting these cases, drug cases, gun cases, right? Um, shoplifting cases, because that's how the exploiter exploits them. Um, but for me, that was the start. And, um, and it all came in the name of love. If you love me, everything he asked me to do from the shoplifting, if you love me, you would do this. So-and-so, she takes care of her man. She loves him, right? And um, I'll never forget 
um, you know, riding through um, the combat zone, which is, thank God, gone, which is an area which is in the Chinatown area of Boston. And I remember driving through there and, um, and I would see the girls and the women and they had on mink coats and, you know, it looked like, it looked really glamorous. And, um, and I would be riding with him and his cousin had girls that were working for him and they would get out of the car. And I thought I was just riding with the fellas. I thought, it, I, I, thought I was the cool one, you know? And um, needless to say, I didn't understand that was a grooming process, like showing me what it looked like. And then again, like any other time he approached me, if you love me, you will do this, you know? And I ended up before I knew it, I, I don't even, you know, just that quick from riding around gazing. I, I don't remember what happened in between. All I know is that's where my introduction was. And one night they drove me downtown, put me on a corner. And, um, and I'll never forget that. Um, because the first car that I got into, I got in a car, he flashed me his badge, he was law enforcement, and he asked me to um, perform oral sex on him, and he wouldn't arrest me. That was like my welcome. This is what happens in this world, right? From day one, if you don't want to go to jail, these are some of the things you need to do. And I remember crying like a baby, because I didn't realize, just like our children didn't realize, I didn't realize what I had gotten into until I was in that car, right? Even watching these women, but to, to the thought of the act that needed to occur was real scary for me. Mm-hmm. And I cried and, you know, he let me go. Um, I guess he said, you're an amateur, get out of my car. You don't need, to, you know, I guess he saw that, whatever, you know, and, um, and I got out of the car and a few weeks went by and then he approached me again. You know, hey, that was on me, I'll have you back. You know, and then from there, you know, uh, you know, I was a part of that, that community through the street corners, through the strip clubs, the peep shows, you name it, anything that was standing, the, the corner was standing, I was on it. I worked every strip club in the combat zone. Um, and, um, you know, and I just thought that that was who I was, um, that um, that's where I belong, so to speak. It was, you know, and one of the things I want to say about um, folks who end up, particularly our kids who end up exploited, like my life, my choice, we serve about about 88% of the kids we serve are, are um, involved with the Department of Children's and Families. So you talk about feeling like nobody wants me and needing to fit in, who will accept me? I mean, that wasn't my story. Um, you know, I came from a middle-class black home. My family owned a big three family home, but there was no nurturing in the home. I don't, like my mother was not, I love you. You know, I, I grew up in a lot of, watching a lot of um, alcoholism, you know, those family gatherings. Um, my esteem was low. Uh, I was very light skinned and, um, and in my community, like that wasn't darker skinned black people, especially the girls, they, they hated you because they thought all the boys, like, you know, all the guys like you, they thought whatever they thought around their own esteem um, was internalized. And then they would use that to, to bully me, right? And so I was just searching for a place to fit in. 
And so I ended up in that life long after he was gone. You know what I'm saying? Because I thought that I had found a world in which I, I fit in, which I belong. It was okay to be light-skinned. Uh, it was very racist. White girls made all the money. But if you were my complexion, you did all right. You know what I'm saying? And so um, it was a life of pain and, and, and misery. But in my mind, in order to um, survive it, I had to keep telling myself it was okay. Wow. Uh, thank you. I just want to say thank you so much, Audrey, for that. Thank you so much for bearing your story and honoring us and blessing us with that to us for us to be able to have more of an awareness of what this looks like. And right. Being right. You're so you're a black woman. Right. So what was the um, ethnicity of the man of the officer that uh, picked you up that first night? Just like the buyers. White. Most of our buyers. <laughs> are white upper middle class men who make over $140,000 a year. 66% of them are married Mm -hmm. with a family. um, And that is your average buyer. People like to think your buyer is a creepy guy in a trench coat. Well, first of all, there aren't, yeah, there are creepy guys in trench coats who buy sex. Yeah. All day long. (laughs) But there are not enough creepy guys in trench coats to make this a multi-billion dollar industry. And I'm glad you touched on that because our black and brown girls and women are sold at an alarming rate. Um, you know, and what was different in my time, you were visible. You're on a street corner. Our children today, they're being sold online. Um, you know, and, um, and it's hard to find our children because they're not visible. It's also hard for people to believe trafficking. You said it earlier um, that um, it happens right here in the U.S. and in Boston. People don't think trafficking happens because they don't see it like when I was in the life. The children that we work with, they're sold online. And our black and brown children are sold at an alarming rate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, learning about that, right? Because I remember you did a talk with World Without Exploitation and talking about that, right? The role of race in uh, prostitution and trafficking and how, like you just said, black and brown girls are sold at a more alarming rate, right? And that just goes back to just our roots in slavery, right? Being um, by white masters, uh, even though they had a family, right, inside the house, right? They had a wife, they had kids, but they would still go out and rape the black women, right? Wait, rape the black slaves. So um, you touched they a little bit. They still had power. They still had yep. power. Power. Yep. yep, exactly. And they still maintained and held that power. Um, so and also, and being a, being a slave, right? Um, and just having that morphed right throughout time and through um, Jim Crow and through segregation and all of that, right? Uh, that power it was still there, even though, right, we weren't still on the plantation. So um, I do, you were talking a little bit about online presence, right? Uh, so how trafficking has shifted a little bit to more being online. Can you talk a little bit more about the online presence and trafficking and how uh, girls are being sold online? Absolutely. First of all, here, let me tell you what has also changed. Recruitment in my day was face-to-face. As a matter of fact, the exploiters in my day took pride in the game that they ran on you, right? To recruit you. First of all, 
before we even get to the sale of our children online, the recruitment now is happening online. All that old school running into, you know, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Of course it does. But even the exploiters are recruiting online. And let's be real mindful. I want people to understand too. Don't sit back and go, oh my God, I know COVID's here. It's gotten a lot better. People might be listening thinking, oh, thank God for COVID. I'm sure it's, no. What makes COVID worse is that now our children who would go to school, not be on devices because they were in school all day. Well, now school is home on a device. Recruiters, exploiters, and they know this. They know that these, these kids, we now have devices in homes where families couldn't afford devices because now the school has provided these um, devices. The school has um, provided the internet service where a lot of these kids might not have had, right? Particularly our black, our kids of color, right? Didn't have access to a lot of this stuff. Now they do. So what happens is, the recruitment happens online and it's real easy. I mean, once you lure a kid out of their home, right? It then becomes, I remember a kid, uh, one kid that I worked with and it was this simple. Online, met the recruiter, uh, the exploiter online. You know, she thought it was gonna be this love affair, right? They went to a hotel they cross state lines from Boston into uh, Rhode Island, which is trapped, right? Crossing state lines. And she had sex with him. And I mean, right after that, um, he just took a picture of her, posted it online. And she said within an hour, a guy was there to purchase her, gave the exploiter $40 and two packs of Newports. And she had to have sex with the other guy in the other bed. And so what happens is, and what makes it really scary, when you put a child in the hotel room by herself, when we talk about power here, all right, we already know the power of the white male, the buyer that's coming, the buyers. The only people that know she's in there are the buyers who are coming in and out buying her and the exploiter that put her there, right? She's still being raped, robbed, beaten, it doesn't mean it's safe. You know, people don't act up because it's a hotel. So I'm gonna do the right thing. And you know what I mean? Um, horrific things still happen, but the young person's not going to the front desk saying, hey, a buyer just robbed me or raped me because I'm turning tricks in room 302. You know what I mean? And so yeah. what mm-hmm. happens with selling our children online is that it's also hard to recover them because you can't find them. When I was in the life, we were visible. If you went through the combat zone, someone was sure to see you to go back and tell your parents that they saw you in that area. It's hard for our children to be found when they're sold online and they're moved more frequently. When one last thing I want to say about that, I want to clear this up too for people. People tend to think that um, all these um, sites are in um, urban communities, right? Um, I went to a a, um, a researcher's workshop a few years back, who back in the day before they um, closed down Backpage, he researched Backpage. 
what he found most ads are posted in upper middle class white areas. And with our children being sold online, here's the difference too. You can buy sex anywhere. Like a white male can go in a hotel with his briefcase. I, you know, before COVID, I was in hotels all the time doing trainings, conferences. I mean, I mean, it's for a businessman to go, right? Now, when I was in life, some prominent people might have avoided that because they didn't want to be seen. Everything was visible. So with our children being sold online, it is easier, but put it this way, those white buyers have more access now. It's easier and easier for them to buy our children. Mm -hmm. I am so glad, well, for everything that you just said and for that story, as horrific as it is, that outlines pretty well um, a common thread that I hear, you know, and I don't think it can be understated that there is this idea from the majority culture, which is white culture, to do a lot of distancing, a lot of sticking our arms out, I as, as a white woman, um, and saying, oh, that happens over there to them or all of those inner cities. But the truth is that trafficking, exploitation is happening everywhere in every ethnicity, every economic group. But yes, you need money to buy and so, yes, majority of the buyers are white males and white males from predominant wealthy um, backgrounds. Um, sometimes there are social workers as well or men, like in your own story, who could be doing something to fix the situation but instead are participating in the crime, right? Law enforcement, lawmakers um, are the biggest chunk of buyers. Yes. So with this in mind... I know we're, we're cruising through our time, and I really appreciate the details you've given. Let's switch gears a little bit. And if I was to say the word hope, what would you, what would you say to that? What comes to mind for you? Well, when you say the word hope, I, I, I actually have hope as well. Um, and the hope is that, um, for me, educating people, I suggest folks who are listening you can go on the My Life, My Choice website. We do trainings on commercial sexual exploitation, full day trainings all the time. And the hope is getting more people involved and don't say this doesn't happen to me. This isn't my issue. I wanna be clear, the other 20% of children that are exploited come from upper middle-class white families. So it does not, it, it does not, um, it doesn't skip you. And, and let me be real clear, 33% of the kids that we serve at My Life, My Choice are white. Gotcha. Nope, I definitely appreciate that. And I'm grateful that you would close us out that way and kind of speaking very clearly that you have hope that there could be change but we need more people to participate in this fight, more people to open their eyes and recognize that trafficking is happening, who's doing the buying, and what do I want to do about it, right? Am I going to participate? Even in being compl complicit, you're not buying sex, you're not looking at porn, but you're not doing anything about what you see as well. That's participating. Um, I wish we could talk to you I, all afternoon, 
but our time has come to an end. So I want to thank you again so much, Audrey, for being with us today. Audrey Morrissey is here with My Life, My Choice, a survivor of trafficking and exploitation as a young girl here in the city of Boston, and now this amazing advocate and voice for others and voice to challenge those who could do something about it. We also were joined in the studio today with Whistling Augustine, who is our Director of Education here at Route One. This is Audrey's story in the series, Incredible Women That I Know. Thank you everyone for listening. I'm Reverend Bonnie Gatchel signing off. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for Complex and Beautiful Bodies, a podcast of Route One Media. To find out more of the work that we're doing or how to get involved, you can find Route One Ministry on Facebook or on our website, lovedbyroute1.org. I'm Reverend Bonnie Gatchel, sending you off with tons of hope and blessing. Thanks. Bye.